Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. I'm just going to pray for Alan before he comes and uh, teaches us this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we want to thank you for your word. Uh, we want to thank you that it's the, the very food that we survive on. We want to thank you that it's the, the very foundation uh, of our knowledge of you. Uh, Lord, we want to thank you that it's living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it can pierce our very hearts, reveal the sin within, and reveal your goodness to us. Uh, Father, we pray as, for Alan as he comes to declare your word this morning, to declare your truth, to declare your gospel, Lord, that you would uh, be with him, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through him, that we would hear the very words of God, the very words of our Father speaking to us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you as our shepherd would speak through Alan to us, your sheep, this morning. Lord, we pray that, that you would uh, anoint him mightily to speak your truth to us this morning. In Jesus' name and for your glory alone. Amen. Thanks, Elder. As Ali said, oh, I would love us to be together. I'd love you to be here today. <laughs> we even talked to the staff this week about the fact that we were going to move from Zoom onto the live stream again. We wouldn't be able to see your faces, which has been nice, Andrew said. And we, we thought maybe we could get some mugshots printed of all of you guys and get them placed around the room. We haven't done that. Don't worry. There's no pictures of you here. But we could maybe. You know, if you want to send in your nice mugshots, send them to Ali and she could maybe get that sorted for us for next week. I'm only joking. Um, I want to take you back to a day, the 20th of August, 2015. It's not a day that anybody in our church is going to remember, apart from maybe one other person, because it was the day whenever I entered into a really significant covenant with someone else. Her name was Jane Brown. She's now Jane McCluggage. And on the day of our marriage, I promised to take Jane as my wife, to have and to hold her for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, and to honor and cherish her till death us do part. Now, the Bible presents the covenant of marriage as this beautiful picture 
of the covenant that God enters into with his people. A covenant, it's, it's just like an agreement, a contract between two parties. And just like in the covenant of marriage, which Jane and I entered into, which we took vows and promises to each other, the covenant between God and his people, his bride, the church, is a covenant based on commitments and promises. Now, all the covenants in the Old Testament of the Bible, they center around one gospel promise, which God made with Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish nation, in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. And it was God's kingdom promise, the promise to bring his chosen people into his appointed place where they would be under his rule and therefore experiencing his blessing. This was the great gospel promise that would reverse all of the effects of the fall in Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world. And God promised that he was going to do all of this through sending a savior for his people. And we see that gospel promise revealed throughout the pages of Scripture. It's like a trail going up a mountain, revealed more and more as we climb higher and higher towards the summit. And at various stages along the way, God establishes new covenant promises with his people. And with their great figureheads, people like Abraham, we've got Noah, Moses, King David. And the covenants along the way, they're almost like steps up in the trail, along that path where God requires his people to step up in their commitments to him. And every one of those Old uh, Old Testament covenants, they point forward to the ultimate covenant, which God promised in Jeremiah 31, which are the verses that we read here in Hebrews 8 this morning. A covenant which is ushered in by God's promised Savior, Jesus Christ. A covenant which finally fulfills God's gospel promise to his people. Now, for the children of Israel in the old covenant, there were many conditions and many promises that they had to enter into. Especially in the Mosaic covenant, which is the one which was given to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. And we can read about that in in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. All the conditions of that covenant, uh, they're they're laid out there. The Ten Commandments, the law, it's all laid out in in chapters 20 to 24. You can read about it. And if they kept those conditions, they would experience God's blessing. In Exodus 19, God says that they'll be his treasured possession. He will give them the land that he's promised to them, where they will rest. And they'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's set apart people. They will be his people in his place, under his rule, and experiencing his blessings. But they didn't remain faithful to God. God said that if they didn't keep the law, if they broke their covenant agreement with him, that they wouldn't experience blessing, but they would actually experience judgment. And that's what we see happen right throughout the old covenant. God's people being unfaithful to him. But when Jesus Christ arrives in the scene in the New Testament, he is the only human in history to ever fulfill and perfectly meet all of the Old Testament covenant. 
all of the law. But despite his perfect obedience, we see that he is the one, in fact, who suffers under God's judgment. And he does it all so that we, as God's people, can experience his blessings forever. That is the new covenant. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in Hebrews chapter 8. It's an amazing passage. And just as the people of the old covenant lived by faith that God would be faithful and he would keep his covenant promises to them, so too do we. We live by faith that God will be faithful in keeping his new covenant promises to us. But as we're going to see this morning, the terms and the conditions of this new covenant are so much better than those in the old. And so in a strange kind of a way this morning, it's almost like we're at a wedding and God is the one who is at the altar and he's there offering his hand in marriage through faith in Jesus Christ to us, to you and to me. And he's saying to you and me, I promise to be faithful to you. Now, will you promise to be faithful to me? Remember our our context in the book of Hebrews here, where we've been and where we're at now. It's written to, to Jewish Christians who were tempted to walk away from Jesus, who were tempted to turn their back on him and put their faith in the old covenant ways again the ways they were familiar with. And for us, we're we're maybe not tempted to go back to old covenant ways like what we see in the Old Testament, but there are so many ways in life that we might be tempted to lose our faith in Jesus. And the speaker is urging his listeners and us not to harden our hearts to God's voice, but to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith the one who is so much better than anything else in life. In chapters 1 to 4, he showed us that Jesus is our better savior. Jesus is all we need to be made right with God. And in chapters 5 to 10, we've seen that Jesus is our better high priest. And through him, we have full and direct access to God our Father in heaven forever. And he starts in chapter 8, verse 1, and sort of summarizes what he's been saying in chapters 5 to 7. He says this. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. Here is the bottom line. What we've needed is the appointment of a better high priest, an eternal high priest, a perfect high priest. And do you see, that is what we have been given. That's who we have in Jesus And so in chapters 8 to 10, he's going to stretch us a bit further, showing us that Jesus isn't just a better high priest by his appointment, but he's actually a better high priest who's got a better kind of ministry. That's what he's saying in Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 6. So I'm going to read it for us because it's been a while since we read it here. Jesus' better ministry. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it is necessary for this high priest also to have something to offer. 
Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So here's why Jesus Christ's ministry is better than any other high priest. And here's why Jesus Christ is the guarantor of this new and better covenant. Look at where Jesus is seated and look at where he serves. If you want to know where Jesus Christ is right now, the writer says he is seated in heaven at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. That's God the Father. Now stop and think about the wonder of this for a moment. Jesus Christ, who walked and talked on this earth for 33 years, after his death and resurrection, he ascended to heaven in his perfect resurrected body to take his seat at God's right hand in the very throne room of God. And that is where he has been ever since acting as our perfect representative before God. To be seated, it shows his power, his authority. Think about who's the only person in any kingdom who sits on a throne. It's the king himself. And Jesus sits on his heavenly throne, king of kings and lord of lords, ruling over all things by the power of an indestructible life. But yet in verse 2, which gives us the kind of main theme for the next couple of chapters, it shows us that Jesus is a king who serves. Jesus is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He's there in the throne room of heaven, ruling and reigning, but constantly serving us, his people, carrying out his priestly duties on our behalf, constantly interceding for us, caring for us, praying for us, presenting all of our needs to his Father. And he does this always, all the time, never taking a day off, never a moment when he is unavailable. If you need encouragement and you need a reminder of that, go back and listen to Andrew from two weeks ago because He's going to say it so much better than I can this morning. And I don't have the time to again. But it's an incredible thought. Jesus Christ, his service for us. In verses 3 to 6, it's, it's kind of just a summary of Jesus' better ministry. Verse 3 is about Jesus' better sacrifice. Himself and his own blood. Verse 4 is about the place where he offers that better sacrifice the better sanctuary or, or tent in which he serves, the true tent, as he calls it, the heavenly sanctuary where God dwells. Now, we're going to think about all this in so much more detail in chapters 9 and 10. But really, the main point here is this. All that came before in the old covenant, it was just a shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ. 
That's what he says in verse 5. The earthly tent, which was constructed by Moses in the old covenant as God's dwelling place with his people, as they wandered through the wilderness, that tabernacle, that earthly sanctuary, it was just a mere copy or a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus Christ now is. It was always pointing to something so much better. And this is why Jesus operates a better ministry than any of the high priests in the old covenant. Because Jesus offers a better sacrifice, which is his own blood, in a better sanctuary, which is the true tabernacle in heaven. And all of this means Jesus is the guarantee of a new and better covenant, which fulfills better promises for his people. That's basically what he says in verse 6. Jesus has ushered in an incredible new covenant for us, which was promised by God back in Jeremiah 31. And this covenant fulfills far better promises for God's people, blessings and promises which you and I as God's people experience today. And so he's going to go on to tell us what those better promises are in the rest of chapter 8. But before he does, he explains the reason why the old covenant arrangements needed replacing. He says that in verses 7 to 9. Verse 7, a new and better covenant was needed because there was a fault with the first one. And the fault isn't found with God or the covenant itself. The blame is placed firmly on the people. Look at verse 9. God says, I made a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. So it's different from the old one. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. See, in the old covenant, Israel were constantly unfaithful to God. They were like a spouse who's continually caught cheating on their other half in their marriage. Despite the promises that he make to never do it again, despite the forgiveness that they have been shown, They just cannot remain faithful. This was the nation of Israel. Even though God delivered them from slavery in Egypt, even though he provided for their very needs and promised to bless them with the land that he would give to them, even though he protected them among the nations, they continually broke their covenant promises with him. Time and time again, they turned away from him. They cheated on him with other gods. And this led to God eventually turning away from them. Rather than receive his blessings, they received his judgment. It was a marriage that ended in separation because of Israel's unfaithfulness. But in Jeremiah 31, God announced a new marriage relationship. One where there would be no more unfaithfulness and no more separation. Now, all of this is so vitally important for us to get this morning because the truth is this. You and I are no different from the children of Israel. We, like them, are unfaithful to God. We're spiritually unfaithful. By our very nature, we reject God and his ways. God is our loving creator. And as our creator, he has given us so much life, breath, relationships, so many blessings 
to enjoy. But what we've chosen to do is love and cherish the created things rather than love and cherish him as our creator. We cheat on him with so many other things in life. We worship and treasure ourselves, our bodies, our children, our jobs, our money, our possessions, our talents and abilities, or those of others, all above worshiping God and treasuring him. And because of that, what we really deserve is for God to just turn away from us, to separate himself from us, to reject us just as he did with the people in the old covenant. And if there isn't the promise of this new covenant relationship, then that's exactly what God could do. We would all be hopeless. If the old covenant was the only way for us to know God and to be in right relationship with him, then we are stuffed. We're done. Because even if I was to make a promise to him today to be faithful right now, I would break that in a matter of hours, maybe even minutes. By nature, I am sinful and rebellious and unfaithful to God, and so are you. The only way for us to be in right relationship with God is for God to make it possible for us, for God to make the way. And this is why the new covenant is so brilliant. This is why it gives us such hope today, because it's all about what God does for us and what God does in us. Look how many times God says the words, I will, in verses 10 to 12. If you're a Christian here this morning, these are the terms of your marriage to Jesus, his vows to you, his bride, the church, and the blessings that you receive being joined to him. And if you want to become a Christian this morning, well, this is what Jesus is offering you today. Let me read verses 10 to 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. See why the new covenant is such good news? Because its foundations are built on the complete forgiveness of our sins forever. That's what God promises in verse 12. God in his great mercy promises to wipe our slate clean forever. To remember our sins no more. This is incredible. God, the omniscient king of creation, the one who knows all things at all all times chooses to forget our sins forever. This isn't like a granda who becomes forgetful in his old age or someone who's been hit in the head too many times and has got repeated concussion or is suffering from amnesia. No, God makes the conscious decision, the intentional choice to never hold our sins against us again. 
It's almost like God goes to the file in his computer which contains all of your sins. It's a massive file, a massive one. Every sin you've ever committed, all of the sins that you're guilty for in your past, all the sins you're ashamed about in the present, and all the sins that you don't even know that you're going to do in the future. And he goes to that file and he clicks on it and hits delete. And it's gone forever. Never to be thought about by God forever. How can God do this? It's not like God just sweeps our sins under the carpet, pretends like they're not there, because he wouldn't be a good God if he did that. He's a just God, and he promises that he will deal with all sin, all the wrong things that go on in our world. God says he will make them all right. But if he's going to deal with all the sin out there, then he has to deal with the sin in here too. But here's the thing, if we're married to Jesus, then Jesus has taken the punishment for our sins on himself. In dying on the cross, he experienced all of God's wrath and judgment for sins to save me, to offer forgiveness to me so that God can forget about my sins forever. I was reading about an incident this week, and it happened in 1993. Newlyweds, John and Debbie Ford, they were scuba diving in Australia together when a 16-foot great white shark attacked them. And it's a famous incident. It became known as the honeymoon shark death, And the shark came for Debbie, but she survived. And she said this, John pushed me out of the way. And it took him instead. It came for me, but he saved me. He gave himself for me. A loving husband willing to lay his life down for his bride. If you're a Christian this morning... And maybe you're feeling like a failure today. Or you're feeling like you're letting God down all the time. You're never good enough for him. You always could be doing more for him. Listen to what God says to you this morning. Because of my son Jesus, because of his sacrifice, you have been saved. You've been forgiven forever. There is nothing more that you need to do. No more striving or working for me. Nothing more you can do to make me love you anymore or love you any less. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Do you believe that this morning? Are you living in light of that great gospel truth today? And if you're not a Christian, well, you might be thinking, how could God ever accept or forgive someone like me? If only God knew all the things that I've done wrong in life, he would never look at me and love me. Listen. 
God knows everything that you've ever done. He knows all of the things that you're ashamed about in life. But in his incredible mercy and love, he is still willing to offer you forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. His death on the cross is enough and is all you need to be made right with God today. All you need for your sins to be forgiven and to be forgotten about by God forever. But listen, it would be so unloving of me and remiss if I didn't give you this warning today. Because if Jesus doesn't pay the penalty for our sins, then there will come a day in the future when we will pay for them ourselves. God promises that he will judge you and he will separate himself from you forever if you remain outside of his love for you in Jesus. So will you turn to Jesus today? Will you accept him as your savior today? In this new covenant arrangement, we are given complete forgiveness of our sins forever. That's what God promises to do for us. But look now at what God promises to do in us. Look how he promises to make us spiritually new. Look at verse 10. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. God promises transformation on the inside. He promises to put a desire within us to live for him. A desire to be holy, just as he is holy. Now this is what God asked of the children of Israel in the old covenant. In Leviticus 19, they were to obey his law. And in doing so, they would show themselves to be distinct from the other nations around them. They would reflect God's character to them. They would show him to be holy because they were holy. But for them, God's law was always something external. It was written on stones of tablet. It was on scrolls for them to read. And they had to read it and internalize his law themselves. They were not given any kind of internal power by God to enable them to live out his laws and to live this holy life. And inevitably they failed. Time and time again, they were unfaithful. And as we've seen already, the problem was their hearts, their unfaithful hearts. A lot of you know this, but when Jane and I went to the 20-week scan of our second child, our baby was diagnosed with a serious form of congenital heart disease. The two major blood vessels in her heart were the wrong way around. And without surgery to fix her heart, she would die. At three days old, down in Dublin, Ruby was born and she was given that life-saving heart surgery that she needed. Her heart was fixed and praise God, she's thriving today and she looks like any normal one-year-old. You and I, we have been diagnosed with heart disease as well. Heart disease which is going to be fatal unless it is fixed. Our hearts are spiritually dead. 
They're riddled with the disease of sin. They make us unfaithful to God, unable to live for him or to please him. And without a heart transplant, we will die. Not just in this life, but we will die separated from God forever in eternity. But this is why the new covenant is so brilliant. God promises to remove our old, dead, lifeless heart and to put a new heart within us. The book of Ezekiel, it talks of this internal change that God promised in the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, it's beautiful words. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your, your flesh, that dead, lifeless heart, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If you're a Christian this morning, you have been given a new heart where Jesus Christ dwells by his spirit. The very life and power of Jesus Christ is living in you right now, changing you, moving you, giving you new desires to please him, giving you new affections to love the things that he loves, giving you a new delight for his word and his ways. What an incredible promise. What an incredible reality for us if we are united to Jesus Christ today. But maybe you're saying, I hear all this and I believe that it's true, but I don't see the evidence of this in my own life. If I'm being totally honest right now, I'm struggling. I've lost that desire to read my Bible. I don't know when the last time was that I prayed. I'm struggling with sin. I don't want it to be like this. I don't know how it can be different though. Well, here's the thing, the reality of living in the flesh, reality of living in the now, but the not yet, is that we still live in a sinful and a broken world. And sin is still something that's going to be a reality in our lives, even for those who have been made new in Jesus. It will be like this until the day that we die and go to be with him in glory, or the day that he comes to take us there with him. It's why later in Hebrews 12, the writer is going to tell the believers to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely because we battle every day in the flesh. But we don't battle in our own strength and power. We've been given a new heart with new power living inside of us the Holy Spirit, helping us to fight against those sinful desires, to fight against the power of sin in our lives, giving us the power to say no to our old desires and to say yes to Jesus and his. We live in his strength and not our own. And so today, if you're struggling against sin or or against the weakness of your flesh, ask God by the power of his spirit to help you Lean on him and his strength. Know that you cannot do it in and of yourself. Ask him to make you delight in his word again. Pray that he would stir the affections of your heart for Jesus. 
Here's a really practical thing, but Jane and I did the marriage course during the first lockdown in May. Um, and it was great. One of the things that kind of came out of it, the biggest problems in, in marriage that they said exists is that whenever a marriage just becomes functional, the relationship just grows cold when you've become all too familiar with your other half. You forget what you really love and cherish about them. One of the most helpful exercises that that they get you to do in that marriage course is to write down 10 things that you love and cherish about your other half. The things that you enjoy about them. The things that you miss about them when you're not around them. Why not do that with Jesus this week? Why not write down what you're thankful for in your marriage to him? What do you love about being in a relationship with him? What do you enjoy about him? Meditate on those things this week and pray and ask, Lord, do in me what only you can do. By the power of your spirit, redirect the paths of my heart back to Jesus. Lead me in the way everlasting, as it says in Psalm 139. And here is what probably is one of the hardest things to do. But here's what we're called to do in that psalm. It says, wait on the Lord. Wait on him, knowing, trusting that he is faithful, that he's always good, that he is always working for the good of those who love him. God promises to transform us on the inside. He gives us a new heart, a new mind, living with the presence of his spirit. And this internal change, he says in verse 10, it leads us to be faithful to him. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer is there going to be any unfaithfulness in this marriage because God says, I will now work in you by my spirit to make you faithful to me. That's a promise. And that's because verse 11, look at what he promises here. He says, I will give you a personal and intimate relationship with me. We will know each other intimately and deeply. And they shall not teach each one his brother and each one his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. See, in the old covenant, only the select few were given this special revelation by the Spirit of God to know him and to teach the rest of the people. But now... Now, as Jesus Christ dwells in the heart of every believer by his spirit, we all have this intimate and personal relationship with God. We've all been given his word, which, as Andrew said, is the living, breathing, active word of God. And as we read it, we listen to God speak to us through the the pages of his word. By the help of his spirit, we grow in our knowledge and understanding of him. And this is available to everyone anywhere, which is why sharing the hope that we have in Jesus with others is central to our calling as followers of Jesus. There are people we live next to, people we work with, other moms we go to the park with, friends and family who God, by his spirit, wants to call and to invite into a personal relationship with him. And the incredible thing is, God uses us in that. He doesn't need us one bit, but he chooses to use us. What a privilege. 
What a calling on our lives, empowered by his spirit to share the truth of the gospel lovingly, boldly, unashamedly, and praying that God would do what only he can do in the hearts of those people, bringing them to saving faith in Jesus. This is a message which is freely available to all people, a relationship which is available to all of us. So will we share this message freely with others? These are the covenant promises God makes to his bride, the church. And remember, this is all possible because God is a forgiving and a forgetting God. He promises never to consider our sins again, to never even give them a second thought. Why? Because through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven forever. So if you're a Christian this morning, will you remember the vows and the commitments that God has made to you through his son, Jesus Christ? In this new and better covenant which Jesus Christ fulfills, will you thank God today for all that he has done for you and all that he continues to do in you by the power of his spirit? And if you're someone who's watching and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this morning, I want to ask you, do you see what God offers you today? The covenant relationship he offers to you through his son, Jesus Christ. No matter how bad a person you think you are, no matter how ashamed you are of the life that you have lived, through Jesus, God says, all of it can be forgiven. He will forget your sins forever if you put your faith in Jesus. This is how gracious and merciful our Father in heaven is. This is the love that he has for his bride, the church. Here's the picture I want to leave you with that I hope just stays in your mind this week. As I said at the start, it's like we're at a marriage It's like we're standing at the altar today and God is there before us. And he's reached out his hand to us. And he stands offering his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, I take you. Will you take me? I promise to be faithful to you. Now will you put your faith in me? Will today be the day that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and your King? Let me pray for us now. Father God, thank you for your word. It's incredible, Lord. The truth that we can read about. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe it to be the truth. We know, Lord, that we struggle so often in our our unbelief. And so, Lord, we pray, help us in our unbelief to see Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ there in heaven, interceding for us on our behalf, our perfect representative before you. Help us to see him there, but help us also, Lord, to see what he has done for us and what he has secured for us. Through his sacrifice, through his death on the cross, we are offered complete forgiveness. Our sins are forgotten about forever, Lord, and that is incredible to us. 
What amazing news. I pray, Lord, if we are joined to Jesus Christ, if we've entered into covenant relationship with you through him, I pray that our hearts would be so overjoyed and thankful to you today, Lord, for all that you've given to us in Jesus and all that you do in us through the power of your spirit now. And if there is anyone this morning listening, Lord, who doesn't yet know you, Lord, I pray today would be the day. Today would be the day that they see your hand outstretched to them and Jesus Christ there, the life that he offers, the forgiveness that he is willing to give, Lord, I pray they would reach out their hand and they would take hold of you today. That they would commit to be faithful to you forever. Lord, do that work in them because only you can. Only you can open our blind eyes. Only you can give us that new heart that we need. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that in our hearts today. And I pray all these things in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen.